0: Thank you, Gary. We're working you harder this morning than uh, we worked Marty on Mother's Day. (laughs) Sorry, Gary made a joke back on Mother's Day. If you weren't here, too bad. (laughs) We begin this morning with a few quotes from history. 16th century. People gave ear to an upstart astrologer, Galileo, who strove to... who strove to show that the earth revolves not the heavens or the firmament and the sun and the moon. This fool wishes to reverse the entire science of astronomy, but sacred scripture tells us that Joshua commanded the sun to stand still and not the earth. That was Martin Luther. 1637. Sometimes the scripture declareth women and children must must perish with their parents. We have sufficient light from the word of God for our proceedings. That was Captain John Underhill defending the Puritan decimation of the Pequot tribe. 18. The evidence that there were both slaves and masters of slaves in churches founded and directed by the apostles cannot be got rid of without resorting to methods of interpretation that will get rid of everything. The Reverend Leonard Bacon in defense of American slavery. 1869. The Bible is the revealed word of God and it declares the God-given sphere of woman. Who demands the ballot for woman? They are not lovers of God, nor are they believers in Christ. The Reverend Justin Dewey Fulton speaking against a woman's right to vote. And then in 1960, wherever we have the races mixed up in large numbers, we have trouble. These religious liberals are the worst infidels in many ways in our country, They do not believe the Bible any longer. They have gone over to modernism. Every good, substantial, Bible-believing, intelligent, Orthodox Christian can read what the Word of God says and know that what is happening in the South now is not from God. That was Bob Jones Sr., the founder of the Christian School, Bob Jones University, in, of all places, South Carolina. Well, good morning. (laughs) Some heavy material to begin a sermon. I credit the Christian author Rachel Held Evans who compiled those quotes on her blog. They may be heavy, but they are an appropriate, maybe not good, introduction to a sermon on scripture Reading disciples. This summer, we're journeying through what it means to be disciples together, and perhaps the most challenging thing to us being disciples together is reading scripture together. These quotes remind us that were we Christians to choose a relationship status on Facebook between us and scripture, we probably should choose it's complicated. I love the Bible. I was raised on the Bible. I grew up memorizing Scripture. I've chosen a career in which the primary vocation of that career is to read and interpret Scripture, the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. Yet, I've also been accused of throwing the Bible out because of how I believe. I remember when I was a freshman in college in Montgomery, Alabama, at a Christian school, I was taking a class, a required class, on the book of Acts, a book which my professor suggested and spent the whole time in class proving that the book of Acts shows why people from Church of Christ were right and Baptists were wrong. It laid out every belief and action of the church. Now, through my own study of the book of Acts, I disagreed with this conclusion, and on my final paper, I wrote so, and I uh, did a kind of exposition of the text we read together last week, that ending of Acts 2, when the early church came together and they shared all they had in common, breaking bread, and made sure that no one had any need. I suggested in this paper, as a freshman, I guess I, I don't know if I knew what I was thinking or not. But I said that I think God is most concerned with how people in church treat one another, not that they get their beliefs all correct. And if we were to learn anything from this first century church, it was that we should do the same and make sure that no one in our community had any need. Well, I have never in all my life and schooling received a paper back with so much red ink on it. <laughs> Were I to write the paper in red ink, it would have had less ink than what the professor wrote on it. Now, I got an A, of course. But my professor argued throughout, accusing me of perverting the scripture. And when he handed that paper back to me on the final day of class, the last time I ever took his class, he said to me, shaking his head, Travis, I don't know what happened to you. Here I was. I thought, taking Scripture seriously, yet to this professor, I was doing exactly the opposite. Let me say again, I love the Bible. It is the book for me, yet the more I read, the more complicated it seems. The phrase, the Bible clearly says, is something I've taken out of my vocabulary. Now, the story that Gary read to us from Acts 17, in it we see that the struggle that the church The struggle is one the church has had since the beginning of our relationship with scripture. When Paul and Silas take this message of the gospel to the people in Berea, these people, Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, welcome the message. They search the scriptures diligently to see if what Paul is saying is true. They take it seriously, the message, and they take their scriptures seriously. But the people from Thessalonica hear what Paul is preaching and to whom he is preaching it to. And they're offended. The Bereans listen, study, and believe. And the Thessalonicans can't believe that people like them would believe. And so they come to this town. They stir up the people. Why would God welcome someone like them? What is it about this book that causes so much division? We we members of Christian churches, disciples of Christ, we have an interesting relationship with scripture. We were born as a Bible church during a time when there were great divisions among Christians. As creeds and lines of divisions increased on American soil, our founders Barton Stone and later Alexander Campbell had enough of such divisions. So they came up with a radical idea. If we all just read the Bible and nothing but the Bible, throw out the creeds, throw out our interpretations, just read scripture, then we would all agree and be united. They had two slogans that they repeated that became calls of the movement. The first, let us speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible's silent. And then they said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things love. I love those quotes, and I love their optimism. They believed, truly, that were they to read the Bible together, it would produce unity, and Christ would come and usher in the end of time. The problem is, the problem was, where one group wanted to be silent, another group wanted to speak, and what one thought was non-essential, another group thought was extremely essential. This back-to-the-Bible unity movement later divided essentially over two things. One was slavery. The lines between the division of disciples in the north and churches of Christ in the south were drawn very strictly along the lines of the Civil War. With slaveholders on both sides, by the way, using scripture to justify their ownership of human beings. But this Back to the Bible unity movement also began to divide over how to read the Bible. Many began to argue for uh, Scripture to be read in what has been called a historical critical reading. That is, that they took into account that the Bible was birthed from a particular culture. And as readers of Scripture, we must read it on several levels, paying attention to the culture and context from where it comes understanding that these texts were written in a particular time by a particular people who had particular understandings of how the world and God worked. Now some thought this sort of critical reading, not critical as in criticizing, but critical like analytical, but they thought it was unbiblical to suggest that this texts that we call holy was compiled over time through multiple authors and edits and cultural complexities and even political baggage that this for many made the bible seem well less holy and so our back to the bible unity movement divided over how to go back to the bible now, some of you have been engaged in recent months on Monday nights in a study led by Kate Ron called Making Sense of the Bible. And you may not know it, but you've been doing historical, critical reading of Scripture. Did, did, you, did you know that? Kate? Okay, yes. Congratulations. You can file for your seminary degree tomorrow. A few sessions ago, you were asked to compare the four gospel accounts of Jesus' resurrection. We're the only stories that's told in all four Gospels, yet as you compare them, you begin to see that, well, it's the same story, but the details differ. And sometimes they disagree with one another, and yet it's the same story. Now, if you want to figure all that out, you can talk to Kate. Tomorrow, 7 o'clock, the class meets again, and it's not too late to join, I'm told. But today we live in a time when Christians seem to be divided more than ever over scripture. Perhaps you've seen it like I have played out on Facebook in the recent weeks and days in debates over sexuality. The Bible clearly says is a phrase that's been thrown all around from various positions. We see it intensify when we debate such hot cultural issues like sexuality and marriage. Now, I've shared before with you how it was my experience and my reading of Scripture that led me to welcome and affirm people who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender, a conclusion that many of you have shared with me that you've come to. And some of you have shared that it was your experience and your serious reading of Scripture that have led you to the complete opposite position. And more of you than not have shared with me that you're just not sure what you believe, that it's complicated, and you want to study and learn more. And by the way, I hope that we have this chance later this year, or maybe the first of next year, to come together and study those issues, looking at what the Bible says. And yet here, in the midst of such a hot cultural disagreement, look at us. We still love One another. We have potluck together. We are disciples together, and we say, and we mean it when we say it, that all are welcome and all means all. Gary just read from a second Timothy that scripture which gives us that language of inspiration, that all scripture is inspired by God, and I believe that. But what does that mean to us? Does not mean every word on every page is dictated by God, God whispering into the ear of that historical author? Yet here in that book are some pretty horrible stories, stories that would get R-ratings or more if put on film, where God sanctions mass murder and rape, rules about women remaining silent in church or submitting always to their husbands. Are these inspired words of God, too? Now, for me, I have come to see inspiration is bigger than that. Not just God whispering into an ear of a writer, but God speaking through a text in spite of the complexities and difficulties of that text. That the presence of God is here, alive in these words, and becoming, speaking to us from these words that come from a particular time and particular people written by human hands who were seeking the best they could, the will of God for their lives, and yet they, like us, were not perfect on their journey. But not everything they wrote down was God as God told us to do this was, in fact, God telling them to do it. People then, just like people today, believe that God told them to do horrible, troubling things, and we've seen this played out over and over again in our current events. Scripture reveals to us that humanity has always had this tendency. The author Anne Lamont has said that we should be very concerned when we believe that God hates all the same people we hate. But that's why we have all of Scripture, For as we keep reading, we come to the prophets where God sends messengers who speak a word from God and call God's people back to God's original purposes of love and justice in the world. We have in the Gospels Jesus coming who is, John tells us, the definitive word of God. Jesus is the word and Jesus calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Through all of this, is God breathing, inspiring us to love and peace and justice, speaking to us through and beyond this text? Now, being a scripture-reading disciple, well, yeah, it's complicated. You can love scripture and still be confused and perhaps even troubled by scripture. What do we do with, as Adam Adam Hamilton calls, this disturbing, wonderful, perplexing, and inspiring book? Now, I'd like to leave you with a few general principles when reading scripture. Pastor Travis's guide for reading the Bible, and you can take it with as much authority as that name demands, (laughs) which isn't much. (laughs) But first, Jesus tells us in the Gospels, When asked what the greatest commandments are, Jesus says what? To love God and to love your neighbor. And all interpretations of Scripture from front to back should lead you to do those two things better, always. The goal of reading Scripture is not to figure out all the rules, but to become more like Christ. And if your reading of Scripture leads to hate, does not inspire love, then you're getting the text wrong. Period. All right? That's number one. Number two, never say the Bible clearly says. Just don't because it doesn't. <laughs> Outside of maybe love God and love your neighbor. But everything else we disagree on. We debate. We figure out together. My third Principle, when reading, you must remember that this text is encumbered by culture and history just as we are. So when approaching a text, you ask questions. Who wrote this? Why did they write this? To whom did they write? And what were their assumptions? But you also ask, from what place am I reading this? Where am I in relation to this text? And what assumptions might I have when reading the Bible? Finally, always. Always remember that Jesus is, as John tells us, the word of God, the final word of God. And all readings of scripture go through that lens. Jesus is the glasses we wear when we look at the Bible. Would Jesus say this? Would Jesus advocate this? Is this how Jesus lived and taught his disciples to live? And does our engagement with Scripture lead to that abundant life which Jesus came to give. Now, to be honest, I don't think that God really cares a whole lot about the particularities of our beliefs and our creeds and what we affirm and assert. That may be our game, but it's not God's game. What God cares about is who we are becoming. Are we loving and kind. Are we seeking justice for those who are oppressed? Are we becoming more like Christ? Are we loving God and loving our neighbor more? As a Jewish prophet Micah said long ago, what does God require of humanity? God requires us to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. That's what matters. And scripture is a guide, a tool to us for us on that journey. But so is this community we call church. Disciples together. We read scripture together. And living together reminds us that we are not the same. That though our experiences are different, and we read scripture different, and we believe different, and we love differently, our lives are as complicated as this book we hold so dear. And yet here we are, friends, sisters, and brothers, family, It's not quite how our founders envisioned Christian unity coming from this movement. And yet, here it is. Disciples. I heard it said that disciples agree to disagree agreeably. And that's us. Our life together is God's gift to us. A gift that reminds us that, yeah, life is complicated. It always has been from the beginning until now and into tomorrow. But it is diverse, and it is beautiful in that diversity. And our best response is always love. God so loved the world that God gave us Christ, God's only son. Love is the subject of scripture. Love is the goal of our life together. Love is all we really need. Amen. Let us sing of these wonderful words of life. The scripture we hold so dear as we sing number 323, verses 1 and 3.